Leadership. All my life, I've been fascinated by what makes a good leader. Are good leaders born or made? Can leadership be taught? How do leaders lead if people don't trust to even listen? I grew up in Arkansas. Now I live and work in the innovation heartland of Northern California. During these last years of constant crisis, I've thought more deeply about what leadership is and what it takes to lead people, especially when trust is in limited supply. That's why I decided to create this podcast and reach out to changemakers from different disciplines to hear what they have to say. As the host of this show, the most important things I can do are two things I learned in medical school: to ask good questions and then listen. Hello, I'm Lloyd Miner, Dean of the Stanford School of Medicine, and welcome back to the Miner Consult. I'm delighted to welcome this week's guest, Managing Director of Health for Emerson Collective, Reed Jobs. I'm privileged to have known Reed for a number of years. While at Emerson Collective, he's used various tools: philanthropy, investment, advocacy, and community engagement to improve human health. Reed's primary focus is cancer, a disease that robbed him and the world of his brilliant father, Apple co-founder Steve Jobs, a decade ago. Though just 30 years old, Reed has already made his mark as a leader, employing a data-driven approach to building organizations, businesses, and policies tackling society's most pressing challenges. It's my pleasure to welcome Reed Jobs. Reed. It's great After, to see you, Lloyd. Yeah, I'm just yeah. so happy to be in person again. It is, yeah, uh, it is really, it's been, too long. Uh, it's been so overdue. Uh, you know, all of us are really doing our best uh, in our virtual worlds, but really being able to be face to face is, is kind of incomparable. It totally is. I've really missed that. It's been. Uh, I think there's some things you know that we've learned from Zoom that maybe we continue. I think symposia work really pretty well overall on Zoom and everything, but. Um, but doing hiring or really building relationships is just impossible without being face to face. You know, recruiting's hard. Yeah, yeah. How you know? How have you done with? You're still you're investing. Obviously, you're you're constantly interacting with entrepreneurs and and with universities and and grant recipients. How has this virtual world affected you and and what you're leading at Emerson? Yeah, it's a it's a super interesting question, Lloyd. Um, on the one hand, I think it's been, in some ways, really positive for uh, the healthcare industry. It has accelerated a lot of uh, underlying trends, particularly around uh, telemedicine and care in the home. That I was, you know, that we've seen happen. We've seen, you know, we in. I remember 2018, 2019, my, you know, team and I were talking about, uh, you know, this kind of new thing called remote clinical trials and, you know, how long it was going to take for adoption to happen and for these uh, pharma contracts to be put in place that would really allow this to scale. And uh, COVID acted as this just unbelievable accelerant for that because, you know, immediately you couldn't have trials in hospitals anymore. So yeah. uh, all these companies had to scramble to figure out how they could do it remotely, how they could do that in a cost-efficient way. And a whole crop of companies uh, really came up to service these needs. And what's really great is that uh, the contracts, the pharma science for clinical trials, since they're very long, you know, are five, six-year contracts. So uh, these companies are now really well-financed and capitalized and the norms have really switched. And I think that's the most powerful thing. People are now really comfortable yeah. uh, signing up online and uh, why that I care about this so much is that it 
is a tremendous uh, development towards accessibility because, you know, there used to be, you used to have to go to mostly academic centers for trials. And, you know, yeah. of course you work here at Stanford and Stanford's wonderful, but people, you know, this, you have to drive a lot in the Bay Area. Yeah. Uh, you know, people would have to drive in, you know, four or five hours away from Sacramento sometimes, and you'd have to get your own lodging. And for a lot of people, that is a prohibitive cost. Yeah. Uh, so being able to do it remotely now and interface with your local provider means that so many more people so much more easily uh, can access clinical trials. And that, that's just been a huge development that I'm really, really happy about. Um, but for us personally, uh, you know, I've had to cancel a lot of site visits uh, and yeah. recruiting, you know, over Zoom has not been the easiest thing in the world. So yeah. getting getting that back is something I'm very excited about. You know, I I do try to, you know, do a little bit of cheating and asking people to, you know, meet for coffee outside or whatever yeah. folks are comfortable with. Um, and, sure. you know, we do a little bit on the side like that. But, uh, you know, that's that's sort of been the, been the best of a bad situation, I think. Exactly. I first met you when your interests in, uh, in science and cancer were just budding, and it's been so wonderful to see how they've evolved and how much impact you've had in a relatively short period of time. You know the space really well now, Reed, in cancer. And what's most exciting for you, uh, both in, in the general grants you're receiving and also in the investing you're doing? And sort of in your crystal ball, which maybe for all of us has been a bit cloudy these past couple of years, but in your crystal ball, where do you think we'll be five to 10 years from now because of the investments in people and programs that you at Emerson and others are making in the cancer space writ large? Candidly, I think these next five and 10 years are going to be the most exciting uh, that we've ever seen in biotechnology. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a strong statement. Uh, but I, I actually really believe that because we've seen advancements in gene editing and in immunotherapy that are totally unprecedented and, like I said earlier, are largely in their infancy. There's a few next stages that need to be, uh, that need to be discovered and optimized, but there's so much uh, great intellectual power being put into them that I have a lot of confidence that in terms of gene editing delivery and solid tumor targeting for uh, CAR-Ts and other immunotherapies, we're going to see some real traction in the next 5-10 years. Yep. So. Uh, my, if I had to put my little prediction hat on, I would say, uh, confidently that I think we're going to see some real solid tumor efficacy, uh, from some exciting solid tumor targeting immunotherapy companies in the next five years. And that is such a big deal. Uh, It's, it's worth zooming out to say, holy cow, we're actually going after the majority of cancers with the next generation of therapies. And this is just the beginning. Uh, nothing else has really ever been able to at scale take care of stage four cancers before CAR-Ts have. Uh, you know, yeah. we've had a few targeted therapies with a few lucky cancers that have you know, low-hanging mutations that they're addicted to. But besides that, it's pretty, it, you know, there's not a lot to be that proud of. That's really changing. So I think seeing some of those uh, clinical trials coming out is some one of the things I'm the most excited about. Um, on the other hand, uh, from a research point of view, uh, I think where we're going to go with uh, gene editing for... Uh, for genetics and epigenetics is going to be really, really exciting in the next five, 10 years. It's an area that's still very young and new, and there's really so much that needs to be optimized in terms of uh, making it a lot safer, making it a lot more efficacious. It's not ready for humans yet, but uh, I think we're definitely going to start to get start to get a lot more safety data. And I, I'm really, really excited for what that's going to mean for a lot of diseases, particularly rare diseases. I agree with you. Next five to 10 years are going to be the most exciting we've ever seen in, in life sciences writ large, and hopefully the next five to 10 after that, even more so. What do we make sure that we leverage it most effectively, that we, that 
the opportunities we have are maximized and the people who are doing the work are maximally successful? It's a really interesting question. Um, that is a point of view that medicine has not always brought to the fore and uh, I think to its detriment. So what I really hope to see uh, at the very least is that we get a lot smarter about clinical trials that represent the, the entire population instead of just uh, the population of a particular locality or of a particular zip code. So uh, we talked earlier about how remote clinical trials are much more uh, accessible and have been widely adopted in the last year. Uh, that's also going to change who gets access to treatments and who treatments are earmarked for. Uh, as you know, recently, uh, for the first time, uh, I think this, this was two years ago, the FDA uh, released a guidance for cancer therapy, uh, not based on your cancer type, but based on your genotype. Uh, this right. was uh, for MSI high colorectal patients, or sorry, just for MSI patients across the board, <laughs> uh, instead of just for colorectal patients. And uh, I think that is a really overdue designation, but that's something that's going to, I hope, become more and more commonplace, uh, particularly with you know certain immunotherapies targeting uh, you know, mutational categories instead of just, you know, particular cancer types in particular. So I, I really think that means treatment, uh, particularly in oncology, is going to become a lot more personalized. Uh, and I, I think that's just going to be a, a different way that it's going to be treated and reimbursed. Uh, and I hope that that will lead us to much, much better outcomes. You know, Reed, you grew up with a lot of technology. Your father certainly uh, led the way in consumer technology and the democratizing effects of technology. And yet, we, as you've mentioned already, we, we have ways to go in, in medicine and healthcare, don't we, in terms of the inequities that exist and that, that have been exposed uh, during COVID in particular. How, how do we learn from what has worked in technology? And you, you talked about clinical trials, for example, and deploying technology to really extend the reach of clinical trials. But what other things can we learn from the tech revolution that we ought to be taking into account as we build the biomedical revolution? That's a great question, Lloyd. Um, <laughs> there's definitely a lot of scar tissue there, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think one of the most important things we can learn uh, is that we need to uh, really, really respect people's privacy and we need to give them the power uh, to determine who has access to their data and what that's used for. So uh, it's interesting. Uh, when when you look at uh, healthcare, you know, clinical records and uh, most data that flows through hospital systems, it is absurdly balkanized and the user interface is atrocious. And it's it's kind of this surreal experience, honestly, because, uh, you know, we live in a wonderfully uh, high-tech world, particularly here in Silicon Valley. Yet when you go to a hospital, even a great hospital like Stanford, uh, it's like you're stepping back in a time machine 30 years. And you know, the software there is, you know, nothing against Stanford, but the software is not very, not very good. Uh, the user interface isn't very good. And it's this, you know, departments can't talk to each other and you can't transfer data and people give you floppy disks with things on it. And it's like this anachronistic little, you know, little time machine. It's crazy. So I think one of the you know, most interesting things that's going to happen in healthcare in the next kind of 20 years is seeing it really catch up with the rest of the world from a uh, from a technological point of view, uh, yeah. just both from a data infrastructure, interoperability, and UI uh, aspect. And I really hope, and luckily this is a lot of this is already 
uh, codified in legislature like HIPAA and stuff. But people's uh, privacy and control over that data is going to need to be paramount as it, you know, it currently is now, but uh, it really needs to be a lot more electronic and it needs to be a lot more interoperable. Um, again, this is something that's probably, a, you know, a nationwide, uh, you know, level, whether that's through legislation or through uh, some really innovative companies in the space, of which I think there's space for many. But yeah, we need to we need to really shape up the uh, the the uh, the infrastructure systems that we have in place because uh, not only are they really not helping patient care, but it's it's really bad for the hospital systems themselves too, and the physicians. Yeah, for sure. And uh, and you know we still use fax machines in healthcare today, if you can believe it. But uh, yeah, uh, and and really that gets to the issue. Of, of the decline in trust, uh, which we're seeing in all sectors and aspects of society, I think. And um, what what are your thoughts about that? How do how do we get to where we are? How do we get out of where we are? And in particular, with healthcare, that's going to be critically important, right? If uh, I, I think we're still respected, health healthcare institutions are still respected, but in general, the the decline in trust in science. Uh, sort of the nebulous nature of, of facts, recognizing that facts evolve, uh, have brought up a, a broader debate that really I hadn't seen previously. Uh, where are we today with that, and where do you think we're going? Lloyd, I love your questions. Um, it has been one of the most jarring things in my lifetime is to see not only the decay of institutional trust across across America. But like you said earlier, to see a real backlash and skepticism towards a lot of what I thought was pretty well-established, straightforward science. And figuring out what's at the root of that, I think is incredibly interesting. And, you know, like anything, it's going to be a, it's a heterogeneous answer. There's not, there's no one, you know, culprit or silver bullet here, but one trend that I've certainly just seen and noticed is the amount that people are willingly dishonest and deceived. It's it's actually really disturbing to me. And, you know, you could chart some of this to like, you know, the loss of, uh, you know, traditional gatekeepers in the information economy. And, you know, you can debate genuinely whether or not that was a good thing to be in place or not. But I think what's an objective truth at this point is with the loss of those, you're just seeing far more sources of information that previously would have been shut out being able to access wide, large audiences. Mm -hmm. And podcasting is a good example of that. Uh, it's, I think, a phenomenal new medium. And I personally am a runner and I listen to podcasts a lot. And yeah. it's it's a great part of my my routine. But you also have to look at it honestly and think, wow, there's just as you get great voices like Stanford and uh, – you know, and other news organizations, you get quite a lot of uh, crazy opinions out there. And some people take that to heart. Yeah. So I don't know if there's a really easy solution for that other than people recognizing that and being cognizant of it and not balkanizing their news information. But the loss of uh, trust in the scientific community, I think is, is really jarring and dangerous. Uh, I, I hope that, uh, you know, this is something that does recede. I mean, if you, if there's interesting polls out there. If you ask people, you know, if they trust prominent physicians in, say, the U.S. government, uh, most people will say no. 
But if you ask people if they trust their doctor, like your personal doctor, almost everybody says yes. So yeah. there is a proximity issue here, clearly. Uh, and luckily, the entire system, certainly when it's one that you experience personally, is, is still viewed with a lot of trust. Uh, but what does bother me a lot is the, the loss of trust in scientific institutions and I guess the scientific method and process. Yeah. Uh, and some of that has to do with the fact that there's just far more, I don't know if there's far more dishonesty now than there was 10 years ago, but uh, there's certainly far more public skepticism that we can monitor. And that's, it's dis, it's, dis, it's, it's, it's disconcerting. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Lloyd? Uh, I think we've done a poor job overall in communicating science to the public. Um, there are exceptions to that, but, you know, we, we need to be more, I, I think one thing we need to be more open about is when we don't know the answer to something, then we, we simply need to say there's uncertainty. A and we need to be able to convey uncertainty in a way that's meaningful, that doesn't sound like that we're just trying to hedge the question, but that here are the things we don't know, here's why we don't know them, and here's what we're trying to do to get the answers. And I think we need to engage more people in in what the scientific method and scientific process is uh, and not, you know, what we really have to avoid is seeming like that we live and work in an ivory tower wherever we are, you know, because I think this this dichotomy between people who feel like they're benefiting from the advances in society and technology and those that feel like they've left behind, that dichotomy is is really dangerous to the fabric of democracy. So somehow we have to figure out a way uh, where the motto, the principle at Emerson, where we each do better when we all do better, uh, we have to figure out a way that that's really meaningful for everyone to feel uh, that they can do better because of the way society is advancing. And right now, I think there are large segments of the country that feel like that the country's just left them behind, doesn't care about them. Now, we can argue, of course, that that's not factually correct and cite a lot of evidence, but it's perceptually uh, the reality for many people, and uh, it's affecting everything we do, I think. Yeah, I think it's widely true, and I think it's actually not the province of one uh, you know, political ideology that we we don't zoom out and realize that we're we're all rowing in this boat together. Yep. And we are sinking or sailing together. And it is very easy to disassociate from that and to you know, to not think of uh your own compatriots as really being on the same team. Uh and I think that's truly been to our detriment because we are so much more powerful united and we are a united country. That's just, you know, the, that's just a fact. Um, and us not treating or thinking of each other like that is really dangerous. So, um, yeah, I, I hardly agree with all that. You know, back to the theme of technology and, and how it can be better utilized to democratize healthcare and access to care. What do you think is working right now? You know, access – each of us does have – legally has access to our records. Many systems like Stanford have made it possible for you to download your records into various apps on Apple or other devices. Um, the number of people who have actually taken advantage of that, even in our own system, is relatively small. And um, I, I feel like in a lot of things in our lives, we – we recognize we have individual responsibility for it, you know, how we maintain our finances and each of us, you know, does our banking online or some variant thereof. But with healthcare, 
even people who are quite literate and, and use technology in every other aspect of their lives, there's a reticence to using it in health and healthcare. What are your insights about that? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, Lloyd. Super important. Um, my suspicion is that people are reticent to do so, as you say, because there isn't a clear utility for what that'll be for. Uh, the only real reason benefit you could get from that is interoperability. If you're, you know, changing hospitals and you want to just take your records and have them with you, uh, but most people who would need to do that are probably, you know, acutely ill or a you know, caregiver, and you know that's obviously a small segment of the whole patient population. Uh, I think an interesting corollary is. Uh, as mundane as it is, is is a credit score history. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, that was something that was, you know, the province of banks for a long time. And most people didn't really think twice about it because like, what's the utility of it? Yet, once you start having third-party apps and APIs being developed on that, there's a whole, in, there's a whole uh, ecosystem around uh, people who can uh, mine that data, use it, you can sell it, you can do whatever the heck you want with it, but there's a lot of uses for it. And yeah. To me, that's kind of the missing part in this marketplace, honestly, is there aren't really any uh, trusted or, you know, good utilities uh, that you can plug in with your healthcare data at the moment. Um, and some of that has to do with privacy concerns. Some of that is, uh, you know, just there, the fact that, like you said, it's a little chicken egg. There aren't that many people who have these records out there. So there isn't a huge incentive yet for people to use it. But I personally think that it's obviously a hugely important data source. Like you said, legally, it does belong to uh, patients individually. So what they choose to do with it uh, is totally their prerogative. And I think, you know, you could actually start gathering really large amounts of data through going to people directly. And uh, we should make it as easy for them as possible because it's, it's their own, it's their gosh darn data. Exactly. And then how do we make it actionable? How do we, you know, link the, I, I think you hit on a really important point in that Right now, yeah, you can access it, you can download it, but then what are you going to do with it? And and do you have we done a good enough job in explaining what it actually means? You can download your labs, but does that have meaning to people? And uh, so, what do we in in healthcare delivery need to do to increase the meaning and the utility of the information that we hold on to and that we furnish to people if they want it? It's just not many people want it, probably for the reasons you just described. One of the most important things I think we can do is make this available to researchers. Uh, I think uh, the data that you see in medical records and that comes out of every hospital uh, is probably some of the most useful data that exists in the world. Uh, a lot of large companies are coming around to this, you know, be that Amazon or Microsoft or other big players in the AI space. Uh, but that aside, for places like Stanford, which have incredible academic researchers, this would be a bonanza for them uh, from everything from outcomes research uh, to, you know, different treatment pathways to all kinds of things. Uh, that if you got a lot of patient data that was anonymized, you could really start asking some very interesting questions. So um, I actually don't think it's reticence on the patient's part. I think it's mostly uh, a communications issue, a trust issue, and, uh, a, you know, a, a real question about what you know, what people, people's motives who are going to use the most sensitive data is for. However, like we've seen, you know, with things like uh, tissue or organ donation, people feel very comfortable giving their data and, uh, you know, medical history to researchers and uh, people in medical systems. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're all, you and I both, uh, the ecosystem writ large is really excited about the advances in life sciences, biotech, uh, 
I agree with you. These next five to 10 years are going to be so exciting in, in cancer, in particular solid tumors. And yet we're also confronted with the harsh reality that most of the determinants of disease are social, environmental, and behaviorally grounded. And overall, probably 70% of, of disease emanates in a direct fashion from, from those factors. And yet they are so hard to address. And, and we've done, particularly I think in our country, uh, a, a relatively poor job at addressing them. How? And this, of course, fits in with, with the overall portfolio of Emerson because you're doing so much in so many areas at Emerson. But how are you thinking about how we have more impact in social, behavioral, environmental determinants in addition to uh, the advances that are going to transform our treatment of disease once it occurs? Great question. This has always been an area that I've been keenly interested in, yet it's really hard to build a business in, and it's really hard to do something that uh, is widely scalable. Everyone's metabolism, diet, sleep pattern is very, very unique. It's very individualized. And what is healthy in some populations wouldn't work with others. So building any kind of standard protocol, whether that's in dieting or lifestyle, uh, is, is really, really a difficult task. And I, I personally think that most people have kind of gone about it the wrong way. Uh, what, at least for me, what I care about most is, do I feel better than I did yesterday? And do I feel like I am in a healthy trajectory in my life? And you know, of course, there's a lot of different variables in that. Uh, but figuring out what my personal baseline is and how I can optimize that is one of the more important things. And a lot of that's linked up to what we were talking about earlier with uh, really getting a lot more healthcare data, whether that's from wearables or from uh, patient data that uh, is gathered at the home or remotely. But figuring out a lot more about your personal health is one of the most interesting things that's happened in the last couple of years. And you've seen this with a lot of, uh, you know, consumer facing uh, healthcare companies, whether that's things that monitor your sleep patterns or, uh, you know, interesting wearables around exercise or heart rate or for, uh, uh, for diabetes. So we're actually getting a lot more activity in, in particular disease areas for people who are either at high risk or uh, who want to do that. Uh, figuring out how to do that on a population level, I think, is a more is a much more difficult question. To be honest with you, tell us about Emerson, uh, about about the goal of Emerson and the health division that you lead as managing director at Emerson, and what you're what you're excited about right now, and what you've got coming up in the future. So Emerson's a really special organization. It's a it's a family office, and it's structured as an LLC, and that really is really important because. It allows us a huge amount of flexibility. So foundations, you know, are tax exempt, but they're very restricted in what they can do in the for-profit space. They they can invest in things called uh, PRIs and MRIs, uh, but those are very restricted. And, you know, for good reason. Ethically, you don't want foundations to be able to, you know, do a lot of investing in areas that they work in philanthropically because that really goes against the ethical mission that they're trying to pursue. Uh, but at Emerson... Uh, we're actually able to do both because we're not structured like that. And right. why that matters is that our whole view is sort of what we call tool agnosticism, which means we see a lot of problems and some of those have market-based solutions, some of those have philanthropic solutions, and we're able to just apply whatever tool makes the most sense in the situation. And that has allowed us to engage with much, many more problems from many, many more angles. 
Uh, and I can see that really being a lot more efficacious than um, you know only doing philanthropy, which, while important, is a little narrower in what it can really accomplish. Uh, so I lead the, uh, as you said, I lead the health division there, and we actually exclusively focus on cancer. So uh, cancer is around half of biotech and about half of healthcare, so it's a huge chunk of that. Uh, and within that, we do both for and nonprofit investing, and. Uh, our philanthropy uh, has no strings attached. It's you know it's it's as pure as it can be, uh, and that takes the form of uh, us funding researchers, labs, projects uh, on a competitive basis that we do internally. So we don't just give money away. We actually have uh, you know scientific advisory boards that review applications, and we try to have it be as uh, as meritocratic and science driven as possible. We try to take the CVs off applications so we actually don't know whose is whose. We can just judge it independently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel pretty confident this has uh, allowed us to really fund some of the best science uh, from some really, really promising scientists. And, uh, you know, we have, uh, we, we don't disclose budgets, but I can candidly say we're one of the largest uh, cancer philanthropists in the world right now. Yep. And I am so proud of that. Uh, and that work is really something that I am. Really, really happy that uh, we're going to continue for a long time. Uh, however, we also have a uh, venture group that I run as well. Yep. And the reason for that is not because we want to like, you know, go out there and make a buck. But the reason is, is that uh, a lot of the same people who are great researchers are also uh, great entrepreneurs. And Stanford's yep. been an incredible place for that. Uh, not only just with the spirit of, uh, of building companies that we have here, but of course, you have some of the very best researchers in the world. And... Ultimately, what I care about is making a big difference in cancer mortality for people. And the only way you do that is by developing uh, new therapies and new diagnostics. And I sort of see myself as a one-stop shop for doing that from inception in labs that we help fund through philanthropy through uh, translation into companies, uh, into the clinic and into patients ultimately. And that whole journey can take 15, 20 years. Uh, But I think that I, you know, this is really what I want to do with my life. And I can take a long view towards that. And yeah. the system that we built is able to interact with basically every single step along that product development pipeline. Uh, and we're able to do it pretty agnostically through uh, philanthropy and venture dollars. And I'm really, really excited to say, Lloyd, that we have seen some incredible developments in yeah. new diagnostics and new therapies in the last five years. Things that were really theoretical 20 years ago are now totally new ways to treat and diagnose cancer patients. And what's really, really exciting for me is that all these things are kind of in the springtime of their existence. They're, yeah. they're really early on. And you know, it's, it's version 1.0 of a lot of these new technologies, particularly in immunotherapy. And yeah. already there's some great developments, but it's so cool to be able to see where these things are going, see them being optimized and hybridized. And uh, I'm really, really excited to to think about what the next 10 years of therapies are going to look like. Understood. There's so many examples like that, aren't there? Yeah. Yeah. What are you most looking forward to when we're done with this COVID stuff? Travel. Yeah. I haven't left the country since, uh, you know, since early 2020. Yeah. Um, So I cannot wait to start traveling again. Um, I, that's something I really enjoy doing both in work and for personal, uh, you know, personal enjoyment. So favorite uh, places. Well, I I have a list of countries I've never been to before, but that I really want to explore. Um, and, uh, Morocco sounds amazing. I mean, it's got deserts and ruins and mountains and like, oh my gosh, what's not to love? Uh, New Zealand, 
how cool is that? Uh, you know, it's Lord of the Rings. It's like it's <laughs> they didn't have to do any CGI at all. It's just that's just New Zealand. Um, you know, those two are really high up there. Uh, I'd really like to uh, explore Machu Picchu. I mean, I've never yeah. been to Peru, and that entire country's incredibly bio, uh, incredibly biodiverse, and uh, the just the Incan ruins there sound absolutely mesmerizing. So, yeah, uh, those are some that I just wouldn't be, you know, cannot wait to go. That, that sounds great. And I, I agree. I haven't been out of the country either. And uh, gosh, I can't even remember. It's it, it, long before COVID, but uh, but I'm looking forward to it too. Where What areas around, around the world are you most excited about scientifically in terms of, of, of the research you're supporting or the entrepreneurial ecosystem? Where outside of the United States do you think are the hotbeds for innovation today? In the medical space um – the places I work in the most outside of the U.S. are uh, Israel and the U.K., uh, both of which I am really excited about. But it's interesting. They both have very different strengths. Um, Israel, uh, unsurprisingly, is incredibly entrepreneurial uh, and has tr- really, really great universities. The Weizmann Institute, Tel Aviv, really great universities, top yep. tier. Uh, but, you know, of course, Israel is a very, very small country, small, you know, punches above its weight in a lot of ways. But uh, it's a small market company and any... Uh, healthcare company there that gets big will ultimately have to migrate to the U.S. Almost every uh, you know foreign company does. So being a good conduit for some of those uh, early stage startups has been really fun. And I've supported uh, some research in Israel for a while just because it's uh, incredibly high quality. And that's just yeah. a it's a very very scientifically great country. So Israel's uh, high up there for sure. Uh, the second one, of course, is the U.K. And um, again. Uh, Top two universities, uh, working with some folks at uh, Oxford has been great. I've done that for a long time. Uh, worked with people at uh, Cancer Research UK, which is uh, their main uh, charity. Um, you know, unlike the US, uh, they don't have an NIH. They actually uh, have to source almost all of their research dollars from donors. And, you know, crazily enough, they have a budget of around 600 to 800 million pounds per year, uh, which is mostly solicited by donations. And the average donation size is under 50 pounds. So it's a ton of like small dollar donations, which really funds most of their research, which I think is just kind of incredible. It's amazingly generous. Um, But uh, what's also interesting about uh, the UK is uh, after Brexit, uh, the current conservative government has really identified healthcare as uh, as the place that they want to invest a lot of uh, government and uh, you know private resources. They sort of want that to be the the marquee element of uh, the post Brexit British economy, and you know that they've they've talked a lot about that, and there hasn't been as, as much you know shovel in the ground quite yet. But uh, it's really interesting to see what they're going to be doing there. And uh, that's just one that they've prioritized it a lot. They have incredible uh, ingredients from academics to uh, great entrepreneurs. And uh, yeah, Britain's been a really fun one to work with. That's great. Other things we should cover today? Do you like to cover? Let's uh, let's keep talking. Let's get some extra stuff. I, that's I great. Time. That's great. Um, Good. You know, I probably had a few crazy things in there. Um, no, I think, I think it's been great. All right, Lloyd. Uh, this has been a little unidirectional here. Uh, <laughs> what uh, what has been uh, the most exciting thing that you've learned in the past year? I think the most exciting thing I've learned is is the power of people. And I mean, I've always known it. Every successful enterprise, whether or not it's a university, an academic medical center, a company, 
everything comes from the people in it. And certainly that's been true during COVID. I've been so impressed, inspired, motivated uh, by the incredible people that I work with every day at, at Stanford mainly, but also uh, here in the Valley and, and uh, more broadly around the country. I think whereas for we, – we talked earlier about how COVID surprisingly and, and, and concerningly has driven us apart as a society in the country. I think in healthcare and, and science and at universities like Stanford, it's actually brought us together in very powerful ways. And that's, that's been inspiring to me and, and certainly it has changed my, my outlook uh, both during – this crisis, but also far beyond that. Uh, I've always felt and known that that what we do is about people, but that's never been more evident than um, than during these past 22 months. Well, here's one. Uh, you asked about other areas that uh, I'm excited about. Uh, we talked a lot about next-gen immunotherapy, which is so huge. Uh, and it really represents, I think, one of the huge leaps forward that we've ever had in medicine. But another really important one is in liquid biopsies. And yep. Stanford's been a real uh, cradle for that, uh, you know, with uh, Ash Alizadeh, Max Dean, a lot of great researchers here who have done pioneering work there. And, you know, recently, of course, there was a bit of a high profile uh, case with Elizabeth Holmes around Theranos, yep. uh, who claimed, uh, of course, falsely, crazily, uh, to be able to, uh, you know, take out uh, samples of, you know, on a few blood drops uh, to test a whole raft of uh, diagnostic things, including some cancer markers, I believe. And while that company is, you know, a marquee example of fraud, and I, you know, am happy that the jury decided uh, the verdict as it did in her case, uh, it has been an interesting thing to see in the last five years that a lot of the principles of liquid biopsies, while you know her company was, a, you know, a clown show, is actually quite real, yeah, and yeah. is really, really kind of coming into the market in a pretty full, full bloom right now. And we're seeing that, you know, with a lot of companies doing uh, extracellular DNA uh, monitoring in the blood, RNA monitoring proteins. Uh, it's it takes more than a couple drops, unfortunately, but it's a really uh, powerful technology with a lot of great sensitivity right now to pick up not only some cancer markers, but also infectious disease markers and a whole raft of other things. So uh, one other area that I think uh, I'm really keen to see develop more in the next five years is is liquid biopsies. Uh, is that an, is that an area that you also uh, think is going to be equally transformative? Oh, for sure. For sure. And we've talked a lot about that. And I think just if you're looking at the companies in the ecosystem, you mentioned work of Stanford faculty, but I, I think we're going to see huge advances. And it gets into the way AI machine learning is transforming our ability to detect small signals from a lot of noise. And so I, I think we're still really at, at the very earliest stages. You know, back to Theranos, I'm glad, glad you know, we, we, you brought that up and we should talk about that. But what some have said that that Theranos is, um, you know, exemplifies the the ills of of, of Silicon Valley. Others have said uh, that, uh, as you described, fraud is fraud, and um, and that the jury clearly clearly made that decision. To what extent do you think the the, the hype around Theranos, and there for sure was a lot of hype around Theranos back in 2013, 2000, well, 2012, 13. Sure. Um, 
what what was that a product of 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 Silicon Valley, and what was it just uh, people looking to uh, find something that was too good to be true? No, of course it was about Silicon Valley. What are you, crazy? Of course it was. Uh, she is not the first CEO to sell herself and her charisma and story as an integral part of the pitch. I mean, yeah. that's that's happened. There's a long history of that happening before. It very well might happen again. I think the difference isn't that she was a huckster. I think the difference is the stakes when you're dealing in medicine are not equivalent to when you're dealing yeah. in software. It's yeah. just very different. And it's <laughs> it's one thing if you know you're selling a a software patch or, you know, a like a fintech solution, but what she was doing was really dangerous and yep. the stakes are not equivalent. So I think it was actually there for everyone to see. I mean, you look at the board that she assembled. Yeah. It was a bunch of foreign policy experts and ex-secretaries of state, not a single scientist there at all. So there wasn't really any true scientific oversight like you would have at normal biotech companies. And there's an interesting kind of adjustment that's happened in the Valley around how you look at biotech companies. Um, I'd say what's what was kind of Theranos exemplified to me is actually the big difference you see between software companies and biotech companies. And the big difference there is in software companies, you have a founder CEO almost all the time. And, you know, they're a crusader and they're going to move mountains and deliver uh, an incredible product. Uh, I know that I know that phenotype very well. But <laughs> it's actually very, very different in the life sciences because often, uh, almost all the time, your founder is an academic who may or may not want to leave their post. And if they do... It's actually oftentimes uh, not the best candidate for the CEO position because they are the best in the world at the science that they do. And therefore, you kind of want to extract the administrative overhead and let them do the science that they're the best at doing. So they can be incredible chief scientific officers, chief medical officers, but you kind of want to, you know, spare them from having to do a lot of the managerial overhead. And oftentimes you recruit an external CEO to run the company. So she kind of had this software mold in the life sciences body, and that doesn't really work that much. Um, and not only that, there just wasn't very much deep scientific diligence that was done. I mean, obviously, uh, it, like obviously. Phyllis Gardner was a fantastic, you know, early uh, Cassandra here saying that, you know, you got to look under the hood because this is all a bunch of bullshit. Um, and no one really did the work to do that. They kind of assumed, oh, it's like a software company where we have a great founder and they'll just move mountains and figure all this out for us. And that's just not what the reality of working in the life sciences is like. And that's not really, you know, what the DNA of these companies are like. For sure. I think another lesson is that if uh, – is to be honest with your customers and your people, right? Of course. Oh, uh, yes. Um, and, of course. Yeah. And if we – you and I have talked about this before, but um, and maybe you could describe it. But an earlier version of the iPhone uh, had some problems with dropping calls, and um, which you know phones back then were prone to do anyway. Uh, but uh, but an interesting discussion um, and and session that your father had, saying, "Look, it's dropping calls and presenting the data, and also saying we're going to get this right. You know, we know it's a problem. We're going to fix it." And of course. Apple did, um, and now my iPhone doesn't drop calls very often. Um, what what lessons did you learn from that, and what what can we all learn from 
uh, from that uh, very historic and 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 I think game changing uh, presentation that that your dad gave. Well, so I, I guess you learned how to hold it right. <laughs> uh, no, um, well, in all seriousness, so I um, was lucky enough to uh, be in some of those discussions, and uh, it was an incredible learning opportunity because it was just about being really honest with your customers yep. and treating them like adults and realizing that there's a dialogue there and that that's ultimately who you work for. You work for the customers. And... Be honest about what's wrong and be honest about what you're doing to fix it. And if you're doing a good job, you should have nothing to hide. And people should be able to trust you that you're going to be able to pull off uh, something that's in both of your best interests. And dad was always really good about that. Uh, Apple has continued to be great about that. I I think the current leadership there is stellar and I just personally think they're wonderful people. Um, So I I think it's really actually quite simple, Lloyd. You just got to treat people like adults and be honest with them about where you are, what you know, what you don't know, and what you're trying to do. I agree. And I think the other message that I took away from that is humility. Of course. That yeah. um, uh, you can be very successful, uh, which your dad was, which you are. Um, and at the same time, uh, when there's a problem, when there's a mistake, uh, you acknowledge it, you own it, and you fix it. And that, to me, under, you know, is what's essential about building trust. And And some of that, I think, is getting eroded today. Not, you know, not maybe in the proximate industries that we know, but but across the board, I think a lot of that, the the opportunity to be vulnerable, to be to have humility, um, I think increasingly that's being interpreted as, as weakness, and it really shouldn't be in leadership. It ought to be seen as a essential feature of leadership. I would think. Yeah, I agree. I I don't think we're making any more mistakes than we used to, but I agree that I don't think we're being as honest about it as we used to. And I think honesty is one of the greatest signs of strength that there is. It's not weakness at all. Uh, It's actually trying to make some decisions that help people. And for people in power, for companies, that's really what their job needs to be. And, you know, it's a hard job. It's easier to try to obfuscate or lie or scapegoat. And it's a lot harder to be honest. Uh, But people in power, we, you know, are there because we expect the most out of them. And that doesn't mean that they're expected to be perfect, but that, you know, what is expected is that they're going to be honest. Absolutely. And maybe that's the the critical message we all need to take away uh, from the pandemic. And uh, I hope so. I'm I'm certainly ready to be taken away from the pandemic and (laughs) move on into some sunlit uplands here. Um, Oh my gosh. It's, yeah, it's going to be you're going to see me in New Zealand, and it's going to be amazing. That'll be fantastic. <laughs> Reed, thanks a million. This has been really special. Lloyd, Thank you. so good to talk to you as always, and to see you in person here. It's, uh, it's a real treat. I agree. Thank you for listening to The Minor Consult with me, Stanford School of Medicine Dean Lloyd Minor. I hope you enjoyed today's insightful discussion with Managing Director of Health for Emerson Collective, Reed Jobs. We'll be back next week with more groundbreaking and brilliant guests as we continue to look at leadership in a once-in-a-generation crisis. Please send your questions by email to theminorconsult at theminorconsult.com and check out our website, theminorconsult.com, for updates, episodes, and more. To get the latest episodes of The Minor Consult, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.
And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate the podcast five stars. Your feedback helps make this podcast happen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to our next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and be kind.